Well, Dan was very gentle and generous this morning when he said that I had very little musical ability. Am I on? I think I'm on. Am I on? Okay. Dan was very gentle when he said that I had very little musical ability. The truth is I have no musical ability, uh, but I'm thankful for that, and we do want to encourage you to, to sing together. It's so good to hear one another sing. Just one quick announcement as we think of Sunday Night Theology at the end of the month. Uh, this is a really excellent opportunity for you to be able to come and to hear a genuinely a, a world-renowned systematician teach on the solas of the Reformation in Kevin Van Hooser. He is an excellent teacher. He is a gifted preacher. It is a wonderful opportunity that our church has to be able to have Sunday night theology and to be, have, be able to have someone like Kevin come and to be able to be with us, which is another reason we want to continue to encourage you to say, if you would come and to be able to uh, hear him preach in the morning, hear him teach in the evening, and then if you do want to participate in giving away candy and meeting people in our community, you can do that immediately after. You literally only have to walk through that door and you're already at the corner and you're just outside. Uh, but this is a great opportunity to come. And just as we think of our Sunday night theologies in particular, uh, we certainly never require our members to come, but we do want to encourage you that, that opportunities like this are often rare in the life of many churches. Uh, many churches uh, would love to have someone like Kevin be here. And so we just want to say, this is important. Please make plans to be in attendance. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. Our time together this morning will be greatly helped by you following along in a copy of God's inerrant and inspired word, the Bible. If you do not have a copy that you can call your own, we have a copy underneath the seat in front of you or near you, please feel free to just take that home. We'd love for you to have a copy of God's word that you can read and understand so you can learn more about Jesus Christ and him crucified. We're going to begin reading in Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 7. The preacher writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit... And he speaks to us with the same authority as of Jesus Christ himself. We're here speaking to us today. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all, but let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, to which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain, and the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few and those who look through the windows are dimmed and the doors on the street are shut when the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high. And terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms. The grasshopper drags himself along. And des its desire falls. Because man is going to his eternal home. And the mourners go about the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped. Or the golden bowl is broken. Or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain. Or the wheel broken at the cistern. And the dust returns to the earth as it was. And the spirit returns to God who gave it. 
Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your help upon this time that we might have ears to hear and eyes to see the truth of God as it has been revealed in the word of God. We do ask that you would help us to behold wonderful and beautiful things from your word and that you would write these truths on our hearts. Father, we pray that you would draw us into deeper faith, into deeper repentance. Or Father, that you would be merciful to cause the one who is here who is not yet a Christian to be born again by the Spirit of God. And we ask all of this in the name of our God who has revealed himself to us as Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. One of my friends used to say that the book of Ecclesiastes teaches us that all of life can be summed up into two movies, The Princess Bride and Fiddler on the Roof. I'm not sure if that's entirely true, but if you have been here throughout our study of Ecclesiastes, they have certainly helped us illustrate its teaching along the way, and they'll help us again today. In Fiddler on the Roof, at his daughter's wedding, Tevye is so overcome with emotion by what his eyes are seeing, he asks, is this the little girl I carried? Is this the little boy at play? I don't remember growing older. When did they? When did she get to be a beauty? When did he grow to be so tall? Wasn't it yesterday when they were small? Tevye vocalizes what the preacher of Ecclesiastes records for us in the final section of his instruction. Not the final section of his book. There's still the epilogue. We have one more week. As the preacher's quest comes to an end here in chapter 11, verse 7, through chapter 12, verse 8. Words we hear all the time but almost never take to heart. It seems like just yesterday, it goes by so quickly. They grow up so fast. Swiftly flow the days, swiftly fly the years. The text has three movements this morning that will serve to frame our time together. Rejoice, chapter 11, verse 7 through chapter, uh, verse 10. Remember, chapter 12, verse 1 through verse 7, resolution, chapter 12, verse 8. Notice first, rejoice. Look with me again in verse 7 of chapter 11. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all, but let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart, in the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. The preacher opens this section with a metaphorical proverb in verse 7. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. In other words, the preacher is saying, life is good. Delight in its existence the life, and the fact that you have existence. Something, if we're honest, we do not really expect the preacher to say because we so often view him as a pessimist, the Bible's veritable Debbie Downer. But as we've seen, the preacher's purpose in Ecclesiastes is to not get us down on life and high on death, but rather to bottom out our hope in absolutely everything in the pursuit of gain, profit, and benefit in this life except the fear of the Lord. More on that next time. 
The preacher then follows up this pronouncement with an exhortation in verse 8. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all, but let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. Careful readers will notice the two verbal adjectives in verse 8. Rejoice and remember. The preacher urges us to rejoice as we remember that one day the sweet light of life will dim and life will be no more. Rather than take the goodness of life for granted, rejoice in each day. In verse 8, them all, because the days of darkness will be many. The preacher helps us see that we waste so much life looking forward to or back upon another season. When we're young, we so desperately want to be older so that we can finally do all the things that we're not allowed to do or can't do right now. And when we're older, we so desperately want to be young so that we can finally do once again all of the things that we're not allowed to do or cannot do right now. And as a result, we enjoy neither. And we don't rejoice in either. Friends, I wonder, are you skipping over today in hope of tomorrow, and as a result, missing out on what is in front of you right now. Friendships, food, fellowship, fun, the beauty of nature. Swiftly flow the days, swiftly fly the years. Friends, I also wonder, are you skipping over today in nostalgia of the past, and as a result, missing out on what is in front of you right now. Life, breath, today, this hour, swiftly flow the days, swiftly fly the years. Whether it is by looking forward or looking backward, we miss the present. Are you present where you are? Just think of the way that you interact with people regularly. Are you actually looking at them and listening to what they're saying, or are you one of those people who are always looking behind them over their shoulder, not really listening, wondering if you're missing the conversation you'd rather have pass you by? That's how so many of us live our lives. Instead of living right where we are, living the life that we've been given, we're living the life that we wish we had, or we used to have, or we've heard someone has had, or that we hope to have. In verse 8, the preacher teaches us that we rejoice all the more by remembering that the days of darkness will be many and that no one can truly rejoice in retrospect, which is why he says at the end of verse 8, all that comes is vanity. Life is a mist. You're young today, you'll be old tomorrow. Your energy will dwindle, your strength will wane. Your kids will grow, your mental faculties will fade. Your friends will die, and as Derek Kidner says, nothing that we are offered under the sun is ours to keep. And the preacher tells us the days of darkness will be here sooner than you think, so rejoice. Rejoice right now. Do not wait. Enjoy absolutely every single day of your life because that is what you have been given today. But just as free time is wasted on college students before their graduation, so the preacher's advice is wasted on the young. 
which is relative in the passage because you're young as long as you're not dead. This is why he turns his attention to the young specifically in verses 9 through 10. If you're the type of person who likes to write in your Bible, I want you to underline every time you see the word young or youth. Look again at verse 9. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. The preacher turns that adjective, rejoice, into an imperative in verse 9 when addressing the young, who he speaks to four times in verses 9 and 10, five times if you count chapter 12, verse 1. And to make his point even more forceful, he follows it up with an additional command in verse 9. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. Enjoy what is before you right now. Do not wait until you have security or stability or capacity, because if you do, you'll never enjoy it at all. All the time, I'll speak with people and say, I'm finally going to do this. When I have kind of mastery over my schedule, that's when I will step out and do this type of thing. And you know what happens? They never have the mastery that they seek. As Jeff Elif used to say to me, Raymond, at the end of your life, you'll never wish that you had read another book or written another article. You'll wish that you had played more. But how is the preacher's exhortation here in Ecclesiastes Christian? And what distinguishes what he's saying to us, rejoice, enjoy every day, from the hedonism that the world offers to us? Look at verse 9. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Does he damper our spirit of enjoyment by reminding us of judgment? No, he does not. Rather, he commands responsible pleasure, not give us a license to licentiousness as he directs our paths so that we can sufficiently enjoy God's good gifts. And in so doing, the preacher teaches us that God will judge us for our failure to enjoy what he has given to us. I want to say that one more time because, once again, I do not think that that is the message we often think Ecclesiastes is bringing to us. God will judge us for our failure to enjoy what he has given to us. As one pastor said, joy is not a requirement for Christian discipleship. It is a consequence. It is not what we have to acquire in order to experience life in Christ. It is what comes out of us when we are walking in the way of faith and obedience. None of us have to have joy to enjoy what, uh, the salvation that God gives to us. But none of us also have the ability to enjoy what God has given to us naturally in ourselves. It is a product of the abundant life of Christ working in us and out of us. The question for you is, is the life of Christ in you? Have you ever repented of your sins and trusted in Christ? Have you ever placed your faith in him? Have you ever asked God to make his life your life. And when you pray a prayer like that, do you realize that Jesus was such a happy person 
that people thought him to be a drunkard. If not, you will look for joy in the world's entertainment. You'll pay for someone to make jokes and tell stories and perform dramatic actions and sing songs as you try to buy the vitality of another person's imagination and divert your attention from the sorrow of your life in hopes that it might enliven you. But as everybody in this room knows, that that type of joy never penetrates deep into our lives. It never changes anything about us. And its effects are only temporary. A few minutes, a few hours, maybe a few days. Just let me ask you, in your pursuit of pleasure from the world, how's it going? Are you happy? The things that you give the most of your time and the most of your attention to, your physical health, what you're reading and learning, your career, your family, your friends, your money. Is it bringing you the happiness that you thought it would? Are you sitting here today thinking, I'm full and content. I no longer need anything. Friends, joy cannot be purchased or arranged or downloaded or streamed. It can only be received by repentance and faith, so that as Jesus said, his joy may be in you and your joy may be full. Inadequate sinners as we are, none of us can manage joy apart from faith in Christ for very long, which is why the preacher urges us to eliminate anxiety from our lives in verse 10. Remove vexation from your heart. Anxiety prevents joyful living in the world that God has created. Are you seeking to subtract anxiety from your life or by your actions and words and thoughts and deeds? Are you actually adding anxiety to your life? Gossip, jealousy, lying, living a double life, crush joy and increase anxiety because we realize We're not who we think we are. But anxiety is not the only hindrance to joyful living in God's world. So the preacher tells us in verse 10, put away pain from your body for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. The preacher reminds us that a day is coming sooner than most people think when the things that we once did without pain or ache are now hard for us and they bring us discomfort. Friends, a sure sign that the darker days are upon you is when your injuries are no longer interesting as you throw out your back while getting out of bed or sprain your ankle while vacuuming. In chapter 11, verses 7 through 10, the preacher does not chide the young for being young. His exhortation is not, you're young and one day you're going to be old, so wise up. Rather, it is, you're young. So make the best use of your time today and enjoy it with every fiber of your being, with all of your capacity and ability and desire, go completely into life and enjoy it abundantly. One of the greatest hindrances to the gospel, I am convinced in this life, is that unbelievers look in on the Christian life and they see people who have absolutely no joy. And they look at our lives And they think that they can get happiness everywhere else because when they see us, 
They see people who have no hope and no happiness and no confidence. And if you think that's not you, just think of the way that you have perceived the last 18 months. The sky is falling. We need a higher view of God. Everything's out of control. And the unbelieving world says, I can get that on CNN, Fox News, USA Today, Politico, The Atlantic, and everywhere else. When they look at us, they should see, despite trials and sorrow, people filled with joy because of what Christ has done for us. Not people without sadness. People filled with joy because of what Christ has done for us. Not people without pain. People filled with joy because of what Christ has done for us. Not people without cancer or hardship or frustration or relational difficulty. People filled with joy because of what Christ has done for us. Hope and future grace and a better life and a bright tomorrow, as Jared Mellinger taught us just a few weeks ago, because of what Christ Jesus has done for us. And when they look in and they see that, and then they hear the words of life, they will say, I want that. So often they look in and that's not what they see. Members of our church in particular, help us build something beautiful by being joyful and encouraging joy in one another. Live life and enjoy life. And as Dietrich Bonhoeffer so wisely said, enjoy life together. There is no such thing as somebody genuinely enjoying life in isolation. Rejoice, notice second, remember. In chapter 12, verse one. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth. Before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few and those who look through the windows are dimmed and the doors on the street are shut. When the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low, they are afraid also of what is high and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails, because man is going to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. The preacher now turns his attention to the second verbal adjective made imperative in chapter 12, verse 1. Remember. Rejoice all the more by remembering so that you can truly rejoice. But what specifically are we called to remember? Verse 1 of chapter 12. Remember your creator. Notice that the preacher does not say remember God. He says... Remember your creator, which should provoke our minds. Remember, when you're reading the Bible, texts don't just say something, they provoke something in us. Remember your creator, which immediately should make us think of God as creator, and we should go back to what God did in Genesis 1 and 2 and realize 
that this God is the one who created everything that we have and everything that we see. He created us. He's the one who gave us life. He's the one who made this marvelous creation in which we exist. He is the one who has created the family and the friends that support us and surround us. As the preacher said earlier, this creator gives us, chapter 2, verse 26, wisdom and knowledge and joy. He gives us, chapter 5, verse 19, wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them, but it's far more personal than all of that, isn't it? Notice what he says, chapter 12, verse 1. Remember your creator. Friends, do you know God as your personal creator by faith? I want you to turn with me to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. One of the most important letters that we see in the New Testament, I think, especially when we consider that especially the passage we're going to read in just a moment, this Christological foundation and beauty for us was written when Paul was in prison. Why did God take the most important missionary of the ancient world and stick him in prison? So he could write Ephesians and Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. For by him, that is Jesus, all things were created. Now notice the source word, by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, by him, through him, for him. The one who made the galaxies and hung each individual star in its place is the same one who is calling you to himself today, right now. He has this same apostle told us, given us peace by the blood of his cross. And if you repent of your sin and place your faith in him, the Father assures us that he will transfer you out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of this beloved child, Jesus Christ. Have you done that? Will you do that today? Will you come to Christ right now? Believer, the call is the same for you. Come to Christ. Come with your sin. Come with your sadness. Come with your sorrow. Come with your brokenness. And once again, plead the mercy of Christ. An unbeliever, we are so glad that you're here today. The Bible tells us that no matter how much you have sinned, no matter how recently you have sinned, the Bible assures us that if you come to this Christ, he will forgive you. He will forgive you and restore you to a right relationship with God, and he will reconcile you with the people of God. But what is the repentance that he is calling us to? This week, I was helped by a quote that I'm going to read to you to describe what we, this church, mean when we say repentance. Believers in particular, listen afresh. The usual biblical word describing the no we say to the world's lies and the yes we say to God's truth is repentance. It is always and everywhere the first word of the Christian life. John the Baptist's preaching was, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus' first preaching was the same, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
Peter concluded his first sermon with repent and be baptized. In the last book of the Bible, the message to the seventh church is be zealous and repent. Repentance is not an emotion. It is not feeling sorry for your sin. It is a decision. It is deciding that you have been wrong in supposing that you could manage your own life and be your own God. It is deciding that you were wrong in thinking that you had or could get the strength, education, or training to make it on your own. It is deciding that you have been told a pack of lies about yourself, your neighbors, and your world. And it is deciding that Jesus Christ is telling you the truth. Repentance is a realization that what God wants for you and what you want from God are never going to be achieved by doing the same old things or thinking the same old thoughts. Repentance is a decision to follow Jesus Christ and become his pilgrim in the path of peace. Has repentance been an emotion for you? That's not repentance. Has repentance changed the way that you live? If not, perhaps you have not repented. If God cannot inconvenience your life, then either he's not God or he's not your God. Repentance is a decision to live anew in different life, to think different thoughts, to follow Christ on the way. And friends, if you're here and you want to know more about what we mean by this repentance, I would love to speak with you after the service and to open the Bible with you, all of our elders would, but frankly, every member here, one of the reasons that we ask all of our members to share the gospel with us as they're joining this church is we want them to be able to share the gospel with other people like you if you've come here today and you don't know what that means. Find somebody and ask them to tell you, what is this first word of the gospel, repentance, mean for my life today, and how might I follow Christ along the way? And if you are struggling as a believer here, wondering, have I really lived a life of repentance? Find another believer today and ask them to help you as you pursue Christ to throw off the sin that so easily entangles. What shame is there in repentance? None. There is no shame in repentance. There is only pride in hiding what your your sin is. So remember your creator to truly rejoice in life, And when are we to remember? He tells us, chapter 12, verse 1, in the days of your youth. In 1827, William Hazlitt wrote an essay trying to capture what it feels like to be young compared with feeling old because when we are young, it is so easy to forget the one who made us. Death and old age to the young are, according to Hazlitt, without words, without meaning. They are simply a dream, a fiction, and life is a delightful journey with no end in sight to prospect after prospect. Life is just one big opportunity, or as some people say in a cliche way, the world is your oyster. To the young is to be as one of the immortals. Being young feels as if we're unable to die. The preacher is saying to remember your creator in the days of your youth, But that is more than merely an exhortation to recall that there is a creator. It is more also than to just think of him from time to time. To remember your creator is to be mindful of him daily. 
and to be mindful of what he has done for you and to act upon that knowledge. To remember your creator is to make God central to your life and the focus of everything that you do. So throughout the remainder of this section, the preacher elaborates on that command, remember your creator, and the lengthy sentence that runs from verse one to verse seven. The sentence is divided into three parts by the repetition of the word before, which has the effect of repeating the command over and over. Verse one, remember your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Verse two, remember your creator in the days of your youth before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. Verse six, remember your creator in the days of your youth before the silver cord is snapped. The preacher begins to hammer home that we have to remember our creator before it is too late because a day is coming when it will be difficult, if not impossible, to remember our creator. The days of pain and suffering, when we can no longer put pain away from our bodies, when, when it's upon us. Years, like when Barzillai approached David and said, I have no pleasure in them, in 2 Samuel chapter 19, verse 35. I am this day 80 years old. Can I discern what is pleasant and what is not? Can your servant taste what he eats or what he drinks? Can I still listen to the voice of singing men and singing women? But the preacher presses further to a more specific picture in verses two through five. Whereas he began with light is sweet and pleasant to the eyes in chapter 11, verse 7, now the sun and the light, verse 2 of chapter 12, are darkened. The chapter 11, verse 10, dawn of life has flown by. Dusk has come and gone, and now life can be described only as dark and gloomy. He pictures old age as a season of pitch black darkness. The sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened. As the storms of life return after the rain and elderly people receive one setback after another, they fall and break their hip or the cold that they get turns into pneumonia. Their son that they raised to know the gospel divorces his wife and their grandkids get arrested and put on probation or their best friends start to die all around them. And as any who have lived to see such days can testify, It's really difficult to remember your creator in those days. And it's certainly hard to believe that he's good. But it gets worse. The preacher goes on to paint a verbal picture of the body in decline and what has become surely the world's most famous poem on aging. As he, verse 3, likens the body to an old man in a decaying house. Look in verse 3. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble... And the strong men are bent, and the grinders cease because they are few. And those who look through the windows are dimmed, and the doors on the street are shut. When the sound of the grinding is low, and one rises up at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of song are brought low, they are afraid also of what is high, and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails, because man is going to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets. The imagery in verses three through five is immensely poetic, requiring careful examination. What have been the keepers of the old man's house? His hands. 
but now he's no longer able to use his hands to provide for his belly or to protect his house because they tremble and shake and they're no longer stable. The strong men that held him up are his legs. Now they can barely carry his own weight. And the grinders that have ceased are his decayed teeth. He can hardly walk and scarcely eat. Without eyeglasses, he can see through, to see through, the windows are dim. In verse 4, he's now become hard of hearing through the doors of his head. He sleeps so lightly at night that he's woken simply by the sound of a bird, and he's too tired to even sing. His limbs are now, verse 5, so stiff that he's unstable and he's afraid to climb things like stairs because a small fall could not only be disastrous but maybe kill him. So it's safer to just stay at home than, verse 5, face the terrors in the way. The almond tree is one of the first to blossom in Palestine. From a distance, it looks like a human head with white hair. The old man's hair has turned snow white. The grasshopper is the embodiment of lightness and agility, but now, just like the old man, it drags itself along. He who was so agile in his younger days has now slowed to a crawl as desire fails and he approaches his eternal home. Several years ago, during my seminary days, when I was serving tables at Mitchell's Fish Market in Louisville, Kentucky, Muhammad Ali walked to the front door and he sat at one of the tables near the front of the restaurant. The very man who knocked out George Foreman, the guy who beat George Frazier to a pulp. It was incredible. And we were all poking out of the side stand, trying to see Muhammad Ali. All of our bosses were saying, if it's not your table, don't even look at the table. Don't go near the table. Don't think about the table. Leave the entire table alone. Nobody can deliver food over there. All of a sudden, everyone wanted to ask if they needed more salt and pepper. You know, do you need new napkins at your table? Can you sign this, by the way? Nobody's allowed to go near Muhammad Ali. It was incredible to see one of the greatest fighters of all time, except that he was bent over, the shell of his former self, pushing himself along slowly with a walker and warming himself with jackets and blankets on a brisk summer evening in Kentucky. The preacher urges us to remember your creator before darkness and death, before verse six, the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and life is broken beyond repair. Because then, verse 7, the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it, as death reverses creation. It's important for us to see that the preacher is not like the philosophers of the day. Death is not the end for him. The spirit returns to God who created it. But the preacher's verbal picture forces us to consider, have we remembered before it's too late? Are you living your life independent of the creator? And you just thinking to yourself, one day I'll finally do it, I'll get it right, and I'll throw this off. One day I'll put this sin to death. One day I'll really trust in Jesus. Or as a believer, are you telling yourself, you know, one day I'm actually really going to put in the effort. One day I'm going to really work hard to grow in godliness and know what it means to follow Christ. Friends, remember your creator in the days of your youth before it's too late because what you're given is right now. Don't delay. 
Rejoice. Remember. Notice third, our shortest point, resolution. Look at verse 8. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. The preacher's words in chapter 12, verse 8, not only bring our section to a conclusion, but also all of his words throughout Ecclesiastes to a conclusion as well. I want you to turn with me to chapter 1, verse 2. Notice what the preacher says, chapter 1, verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Careful readers just notice that chapter 12, verse 8 is almost identical to chapter 1, verse 2. They represent the book ends of his quest for profit, for gain, for benefit in this life. But notice how carefully the preacher has constructed his teaching. Chapter 1, verse 2 is followed by chapter 1, verses 3 through 7, which describe the circularity of nature. Just follow along here with me. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Remember, that's been the goal. From verse 3 all the way now to 12.8. How do I gain? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Just think, people who thought themselves invincible, the Romans, right? Any, any empire, pick one, the Ottomans. A generation goes and a generation comes, the earth remains forever. Brothers and sisters, it's a reminder to us as we think of our own nation. A generation goes and a generation comes. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuit, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full to the place where the streams flow There they flow again. We look out on the ocean and we think all of the water on the planet and it's never satisfied. It's never full. The preacher takes chapter 1, verse 2 and he follows it up with the circularity of nature. And then in chapter 12, verse 8, right before that is chapter 12, verses 1 through 7, which describes the inevitable end and experience of absolutely every human life. From creation in general... To each individual in particular, both chapter 1, verses 3 through 7, and chapter 12, verses 1 through 7, help us see the circularity of all things, the ongoing circularity of nature, and the ongoing circularity of each individual life. And together, they help us see that it is the ongoing reality of the universe, sunrise, sunset, the earth spinning on its axis, one day... One week, one month, one year, next day, next week, next month, next year. Together they help us see that any attempt to profit, to gain, to benefit in this life apart from Christ is vanity. The earth will churn on and your greatest achievements in life will be forgotten. What you labored most to build will never be remembered by most people. A hundred years from now, you would be hard-pressed to think that you were remembered by your own grandchildren and great-grandchildren. They won't even know your name. And that forces us to take Tevye's advice more seriously, 
Swiftly flow the days. Swiftly fly the years. After asking all of those questions, Tevye sings this. Sunrise, sunset. Sunrise, sunset. Swiftly flow the days. Seedlings turn overnight to sunflowers, blossoming even as we gaze. Sunrise, sunset. Sunrise, sunset. Swiftly fly the years. One season following another, laden with happiness and tears. Tevye helps us see that what the preacher says to us is also true. The joy and tears are not incompatible. Joy and tears are not incompatible for the Christian life. In fact, the most sorrowful night of our Lord's life resulted in great cause for rejoicing for all of us here today. The Lord's Last Supper is not merely a remembrance of the Exodus. It is a decisive turning point in the life of all believers. Because on that night, Jesus proclaimed the gospel to his disciples, just like we will proclaim the gospel to one another today in the observance of this ordinance, in the observance of this sacrament here today, reminding one another that it is through the broken body and the torn flesh of Jesus Christ and his spilled blood that we can have hope and cause for rejoicing, that we can have confidence that we can be transferred out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son, that though we might have sadness in this life, that there is life before us, resurrection and glory forevermore, that there is promise of restoration, that there is comfort for all sorrows, that a day is coming when our savior, our king, the Lord Jesus Christ will make all wrong things right and he will make all things new as he brings about a new world with a new type of existence that we are not even able to describe in part. This table proclaims to us that reality, that sadness and joy go together in the Christian life because on that great night, Jesus sitting in the presence of his friends was betrayed and then denied and then abandoned and later mocked and beaten and scorned and murdered. And as a result of that, we have great cause for hope today. But friends, if we're going to approach this table rightly, as always, we must pause and consider, are we approaching it rightly? I call upon us to hear once again the words of the Apostle Paul, where he invites us to examine ourselves as we approach this table. Here, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. As the benefit is great, so the danger is great. If we approach the table wrongly, this is a time for us to just pause in this service, musicians included, everyone pause. And if there is unconfessed sin in your life, repent of it right now to the Lord. Let's pause and pray.
Father, we pray that you would forgive us of sins, of lying, of exaggeration, of pride, of hate, of anger, of malice, of slander, of sins like these, because on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Amen. Friends, examine your lives and be ready now in this moment to not only repent of your sins as you have just done, but to live a new and holy life. Acknowledge your sins, but not only individually. This table reminds us that we come together. That's part of the reason that we come and we break off from the same loaf together to remind us that we are part of one body, one united body through what Jesus Christ has done for us. But there cannot be unity where there is bitterness and unforgiveness and hate and anger in our hearts. Hear the word of the Lord. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you yours. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Brothers and sisters, if you need to reconcile with somebody else here today, go and do it now before the table or abstain and go and make it right. Confess your sins. And Jesus assures us that when you confess your sin, you will be forgiven of your sin and cleansed from all unrighteousness. Every time as we approach the table and we remind ourselves of the repentance that we all need, we actually are reminding ourselves that when we repent, we can have assurance that we are the people of God. We can have confidence that Jesus forgives us. We can have our faith strengthened as we come boldly to the table, approaching the throne of grace, reminding ourselves of our ever-present need for Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. If you have repented of your sins and believed the gospel, if you have been baptized, if you are a member in good standing of an evangelical church that preaches the same gospel that this church preaches, then we invite you to come to the table and to celebrate with us. In just a few moments, there'll be a few lines. You can come and you can break off a piece of the bread. You'll take a cup of the juice, take it back to your seat, and then we will take it together. If you do not feel comfortable breaking off that bread or reaching in to grab a common cup, we have some communion kits. I'll be serving them down here. You can just come and take one of those and then take it back to your seat with you. We would love for you to still come forward and to grab that so that we can celebrate right now the unity of the people of God as we come to the table together. I'm going to ask you to stand. I'm going to pray. The musicians will come, and then they will lead us in song. Father, we thank you for the Bible. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to grow in our love and affection for your word, that we would never grow weary or tired of hearing the words of life. Father, we pray today as we approach this table we would be reminded not only of what you have done for us individually, but what you have done for us corporately, that you have made us the people of God. You have given us your friends as our own. You have saved us and placed us among your people. And God, we pray and we ask in the name of the Lord Jesus that we would celebrate that unity by coming together and singing these songs and reminding ourselves of the great hope that is ours in Christ, regardless of whatever is before us. And we ask all of this in the name of our great God and Savior. Amen.